When we look back on 2021, it will largely be remembered as the year the world tentatively crept out of lockdown. Between the almost miraculous COVID vaccine rollout and shifts in public health policy, by summer, many people felt safe to leave their houses for the first time in over a year. But if you look at the incredible TV that was being brought to us in 2021 via countless streamers, cable channels, and sure, hey, maybe even broadcast networks, you could understand why some people would rather just sit on the couch anyway. So as we bid another very weird year goodbye, the great pop culture debate wants to look back and give thanks for this new golden age of television as we share our thoughts on the best television of 2021. If you're listening to this, that means I'm still under Wanda Maximoff's spell and I'm playing the role of your wacky gay neighbor. <laughs> I'm your host, Eric Resniak. Please help me welcome our amazing panel. She gives herself one treat a year, and last year it was Strippers on Ice. It's Ama Marfo. I was born to do this, I was raised to do this, so let's go. And I want to thank you, Ama, for that tip, even after I fell on that double lutz, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, next, he possesses the world's largest collection of Deborah Vance branded caftans. He is easy, breezy, and beautiful. Beautiful. Welcome, Johnny Minogue. It's the best way to look smart. Jean Smart, that is. Mm. And this is Johnny's first ever episode with a podcast, so please be gentle with him. Welcome Thank back. You. <laughs> Welcome back, Kate Reculia, the great pop culture debate's very own bassoonist fatal. I actually don't own a label maker, but I still could kill you with poison. You listen, that's fine, Kate, but please do not mix your instrument cleaning kit with my sex toys. And I say that more for your benefit <laughs> than mine. <laughs> And finally, we are so excited to welcome our special guest star, our Heather Locklear of this episode, if you will. She went all the way to the moon to find good television. It's Catherine Van Arendonk from Appointment Television Podcast and Vulture. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I promise not to bring any particular, you know, late night 90s drama, except for when, of course, that does have to happen. Thank you very much. <laughs> I will be listening to the wailing guitars as you're throwing all the papers off a desk. So that's correct. Yes, that's all I ask. Uh, that's all I ask. So our best of episodes are a little different than our usual format. There are no polls, no brackets, barely even any debating. Our panelists are just going to do a pop culture show and tell on our individual top three TV series for the year. Do you disagree with some of our picks? Do you want to add your own favorites to the discussion? Head to greatpopculturedebate.com and leave a comment on this episode or find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook and tell us what you think. With that out of the way, let's get to these top threes. I'm going to start in alphabetical order, and that means, Ama, you are up first. Okay, so we're going in alphabetical order, and I'm actually going to go in chronological order because if I had to do a favorite favorite, we'd be here till the end of next year. <laughs> so I'm starting with January and with WandaVision. And it is wild to me that the TV part of the MCU, this latest version, started this year. But it did, and it started with WandaVision. What? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, how the hell was that this year? But yeah, end of January, or like middle of January, was when we got WandaVision, which I was so excited about because that is a show that loves TV as much as I love TV. Yeah. And just the commitment that they took to getting each like progression of TV right and all the small references that it takes to get those sorts of things right was really interesting to me just as someone who loves the forum was like, do they care enough about this to get it right? And they did. But I also really like it because... 
there's so many pieces of the MCU that depend upon one another to be able to be enjoyed. And I'm somebody who likes Marvel movies. I don't necessarily rush out to go see the new one the very instant it comes out. So I'm casual enough of a fan that I know that things connect. And most of the time I understand those connections. And I really liked that at a moment where sometimes we didn't have the mental bandwidth to kind of chase down pieces. There was a self-contained bit of entertainment that you could enjoy for the most part, whether you had a sense of what was going on with other pieces of the MCU or not. And that has changed as an approach as that those television shows have gone forward. Uh, Captain America Winter Soldier connects to other things. Loki connects to other things. Hawkeye is going to connect to other things. And it's a little bit harder to do that now. So for me, as someone who finds themselves to be a little bit more casual in that world, it was approachable. And I really, really liked that about it. And then the last piece I'll say is the idea of being trapped by grief at the beginning of like the second year of being not trapped per se, but like still not knowing how much longer we had before we were going to be vaccinated and a path out of what we were dealing with. That was really attractive. And I know that some of the lines that dealt with it more explicitly got made fun of a great deal on social media, but there is something about that idea of like, most of us hadn't found a mechanism to grieve for a lot of stuff that we'd lost. So the idea of it felt additionally poignant. So I really, really liked that about it. That's an interesting point, especially someone who's more of a casual MCU, because I'm diehard and I watch all of them. So for me, like I was uh, I'll be very honest, like the finale kind of bummed me out because I was expecting things to happen, which didn't happen. And that is 100 percent on me. And it was a good reminder to not like expect certain things out of a show, just enjoy it. So there's that lesson again. But did anybody else watch the show who also maybe is not a super MCU fan, but still enjoyed it? Oh yeah, that would that would absolutely be my experience of WandaVision. I um walk into every Marvel property like Troy from Community um just holding a pizza. I walk in <laughs> and I say, "What's what's uh what's going on here?" and I am almost immediately pummeled every time by all of the things that I do not recognize. Now, it this would seem to be a contradiction because what I'm telling you is that I watch a lot of it, but that also I understand none of it um and you would think that i would be capable of retaining from one property to the next really truly anything about how any of these characters connect in any way but i um, sadly that is not the case uh and so i true i come to each new one uh, like a fresh baby and <laughs> the the wandavision i completely agree um that it is Part of what made it feel so accessible was that it, because it was this self-contained story, which they were able to kind of create a fictional excuse for, um, it was, it felt uh, like it was balancing its stakes in a way that I could understand. I mean, uh, in the case of something like Loki, where you have an ending where a character shows up and I'm supposed to be like, oh, shit. And like, I'm just I don't. Um, That's a situation where they failed to create stakes that for people who don't know what's happening. And when you start from this assumption that everything is, you know what it is, uh, you are being more careful about how characters are developed in that arc which is i think totally correct about like why wandavision worked um i also found the ending disappointing but it, not in a way that like bounced back and retroactively undid my appreciation of the show 
Oh, 100. I, I, I still think it's a, a, a terrific series. And I loved those first couple episodes. Like bef- you, you could Before see you that knew. things were not quite yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. But you didn't mm-hmm. quite know what was going on. To me, like I was just loving that. It was also it was- like a real time show that people all watch together over a period of weeks. Like yes. when was the last time Game of Thrones that that happened? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It was, as Catherine might say, appointment television. Oh, so, hey, yeah. look at that. And also, like, oh. anything that makes the internet lose its mind about Catherine Hahn, just like, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so let me also say that. Like, it was one of those things where people were like, did you know how good she was? And I was like, yeah, many of us have known for several years. And I would say the same thing about Paul Bettany. Mm-hmm. I have literally been yelling about how good Paul Bettany has been for 20 years. So tale. people were finally, <laughs> yes, it's a Knight's Tale. Exactly. So A Knight's Tale Paul Bettany walked so that like magic show Paul Bettany vision could run. And Let's like, be clear. Let's be clear. A Knight's Tale Paul Bettany walked naked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you. But yeah, so I'm it was so Google nice to right see. Now. Yeah, yeah, Google it. <laughs> yeah, get, get, get out in there. It's excellent. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where it was also really rewarding in that regard that it let the people in it shine really brightly. Yeah, yep, um, yeah. Like Paul Bettany had not had that kind of showcase in the MCU before that, just because his character didn't allow for it. So I did really like it. And the fact that Catherine Hahn is getting more of what she got to do is rightfully deserved and the perfect outcome for this. One thing I can say is I actually did not watch it at all. However, <laughs> I can come from this, from this fact that I knew exactly who Agatha was. I knew Agnes. <laughs> I knew Agatha. Agatha all along and there's this great meme of her winking over Michael Sambello's maniac to a bunch of random pictures of just things getting all <laughs> fucked up and I, I, I did not need to watch the show to know that's my bitch <laughs> so so I can understand why if someone who is really into the MCU I am absolutely 100% not no tea no shade it's just not my cup of lemonade but I can understand why just from Catherine Hahn's character and the way she portrayed Agatha so this is all amazing it is amazing and thank you that's a great pick um speaking of comic books i'm going to get to my next pick and uh i'm already feeling kate sharpen the knives so i'm really excited that's the sound to of my knives you. sharpening no i'm not we're not i'm not gonna come for you i will just have a, a little rejoinder go ahead <laughs> That is so good. Although I'm going to start by saying why I think it's not okay. great. But it's The Nevers Season 1 on HBO. Um, can so, I join Kate? Sorry. Yes, you can. Going, I, I, you can. I'm so excited. <laughs> but let me start with this disclaimer, which is that um, this is a Joss Whedon show. And Joss Whedon in 2021, not a great place to be. Um, so uh, uh, he's been justifiably called out for his years of shockingly bad treatment against women and people of color. And he's getting his comeuppance, right? That is happening. Unfortunately, his DNA is all over this show. Like, it is it is quintessentially a Whedonverse program, right? Um, with that being said, uh, he's been pushed out of it at this point. And when the show returns, assuming it does return, I know they filmed additional episodes after he's been removed from the helm. Um, it will be different show- showrunners, although they're people who I have, believe have worked with him for many years. I'm going to play the old separating the art from the artist card. And you can say to me, bullshit, and I will take that. (laughs) But I'm going to play it. 
Um, so what is the nevers if you've never heard of it? So the quickest summation I can give to you and the reason why I love it deeply is as an, an old school comic geek, this is the 1980s Chris Claremont X-Men, but retold as a Victorian steampunk tale where all the powers are not mutations, but instead the result of an alien visitation. And all of the leads are unilaterally women or people of color or some other kind of other in society. Um, and I, I literally don't believe there's a single straight white male character who is portrayed as anything other than a monster or an abuser, which is ironic given what we know about Joss Whedon. <laughs> but here we are. So um, as I mentioned, it is a hard sell because it's it's a Whedon. But there are so many things that I do love about this show. I think that the two lead characters in it, um, they're strong, but through the male gaze version of strong. Like when you go back and look at Buffy now, you realize, yes, that's a quote, strong female character, but it's still a man writing that character, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but I love their dynamic together. And I think there's this really rich supporting cast that needs to be utilized more than it is. Uh, the moments that I think that show really shines are when the supporting cast is kind of getting raised up to a level where they're part of the action. The powers are super interesting and it, it's just loaded with subplots. So for me, it's hitting all of the these notes of all, all the different things that I did love about the Whedonverse, not recognizing the kind of darkness that was going on behind the, the scenes. Um, and then the final episode of part one, I guess, of season one, it's not the full first season. Uh, it takes a page right out of Dollhouse, which I also loved, uh, by taking a leap to a completely different time, a completely different location with a completely different cast of characters that you know nothing about, but yet completely revealed so much about what was going on. Um, I, a lot of people hated it. A lot of people hated that. I ate it up and I was furious when I realized that I was going to have to wait months for, for more of it. But the thing that really does resonate so much with the show, as I mentioned, is that it is that top tier 1980s X-Men 100%. It's like... It's not just like the rough drawings of the X-Men. It's a full copy and paste. He's just changed <laughs> all the characters and concepts enough that he's not going to get sued. Like Olivia Williams is full on doing a Professor X deal. Yes, uh, she is. Got, You're right. <laughs> she's Dennis O'Hare is 100% a like Victorian era Mr. Sinister. Malady is a takeoff of uh, Typhoid Mary. Like it's all right there. It's just switched so much and i'm never going to get that tv show right i'm never going to be able to see those characters that i loved reading growing up in a tv show but i'm getting it here and that's because whedon loved that run he loved it so much he, he actually wrote the x-men comics for a brief period of time this is him being able to actually like get in there and play with those characters and i just i love seeing it i i really do so go ahead come at me I, i'm ready. okay okay so like all of my arguments are going to be like i loved the show for personal reasons so who am i to come for you for that but like i yeah. basically and look anything with hot vicar is like a bisexual like libertine i am into uh hot, hot yes. vicar <laughs> james norton james norton grantchester hot vicar um but like i was watching it and i was like mm, you know grading on a curve i'm kind of in i'm kind of in and then something happens like three or four episodes in where it's this like beautiful hopeful thing and then someone is killed yes so dramatically yes. and i was like oh fuck you joss whedon and i just turned it off <laughs> so i just <laughs> there's other tv i want to watch but i understand why you dig it <laughs> that's fair and i can understand why that moment in particular broke you from the show Ugh. because it is brutal and but again it, to me it's so quintessentially joss whedon yeah like, well that, that is, was it right it was, it's, it's like brutal and unearned and I was like, no. Mm. 
I, I won't even deny that. I won't. But uh, to me, I was just like, okay, I, I need to see where they go next with this. And um, I guess you could frankly argue that that was a MacGuffin mm-hmm. and it would have made it far too easy had that character continued. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Catherine, you had thoughts? Uh, yeah, my thoughts are really petty. Um, <laughs> Catherine, I live for pettiness. It's my signature color. We, we do that yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, well, so my, my less petty thought is sort of fundamentally at odds with the show that Whedon wants to make, but is a bigger frustration that I have with TV, which is that, you know, a thing happens in the last episode of this half of television, a big dramatic thing. And my feeling is if that's the TV show you want to make, you should make that TV show from the start. (laughs) And that should be the TV show that you're making instead of, you know, this thing thing where you sort of put, create this world, build it, and then be like, ha suckers. Uh, it's a different show. Um, and I think, I think it's, you know, I have a lot of quibbles with, um, I, I really fell deeply in love with like what a Joss Whedon show is and then fell really hard out of love. And so it was Mm -hmm. very hard for me to watch this show and just see all of those things and, and feel very differently about them than I used to. But I do want to particularly point out the stupidest fucking pettiest <laughs> scene of all time, which is that the, there's a bunch of ladies. If you've never seen the show, the ladies, there's ladies with powers. There's different powers. They're all weird. There's one lady whose whole deal is she's just giant. That's it. Nobody's, she's giant. CGI looks really weird. She's big in every room. Everyone's like, whoa, she's big. She's a giant lady. And one of them is, one of them turns things to glass, I guess. Nobody knows what her deal is, but she sits there at a table with a plate of grapes and she just turns them to glass and smashes each grape over and over and over again. And what I would like to let you know is that table grapes did not exist until the 20th century. <laughs> well, see, that's the kind of trivia we need. Right there. We, can these we can shut it down right now, folks. We are not going to get any better than that read. That is fucking amazing. Thank you. Oh, amazing. Thank oh you. my gosh. But who doesn't want to have when you're frustrated, take Take some grapes, turn them into glass, and smash them. Like that's <laughs> catharsis. It sounds, it's a it's a nice thought, isn't it? But it really is. Yeah, a man named Thompson was responsible for that, and it wouldn't happen for a couple more decades. So <laughs> thank Incredible. you. That, I love this. Thank you so the much. More I you you. Know. Star wipe. Star wipe. Well, thank you all. I'm gonna move on to Johnny's first pick. Which uh, go ahead, take it away. All right. So my first pick for this season is actually going to be it's kind of a downer but it's an amazing show it's it's the it's a sin um was on hbo max um so if you don't know much about it um it's a sin takes place in 1981 through 1991 in london and follows a group of queer and queer ally uh friends as they are kind of navigating the beginning of the H- hiv aids crisis that did strike the um, well, the entire world. Um, one of the things that really stuck out for me and the thing I really love was some of the realism in the relationships. Um, so the main character who was played by Ali Alexander from years and years and years, Richie. So there's really three main characters. There's Richie, um, Roscoe, who's played by Omar Douglas, and then Jill, who was their friend, played by Lydia West, who I thought was in the um, Easy On Me video by Adele, which is not. Someone looks very much like her. Anyway, so... <laughs> (laughs) 
um, is that they're kind of the core friendship of the group. There are a lot of people who come in and unfortunately come out of the of the group in different times but one of the things is just the realism and one of the things in the first episode was when ollie was having his first sexual experience he's a fresh-faced kid off of the isle of white which is just be, the, the cape of of england and it was he was having his first relation first sexual experience and it was he did not freshen up where he needed to freshen up and as a gay man of that when I was that age, I kind of had the same kind of experience. So I fell for it. And I thought the realism of that, um, that really hard, that's like really excitement, but then completely getting thrown down, broken up and, re and realizing that this is not the magical first time experience I really wanted to have. Um, but as the course goes, as the show goes on, there's a little bit of, and even unfortunately a parallel between now and then was the, was within the second episode people started dying and getting really sick no one was knowing what was happening um but there was some denial that oh there's nothing wrong people are oh i'm gonna be fine nothing's gonna happen to me i don't need to protect myself i don't need to do anything um and actually richie the main character it's very it just sets this it sets the tone for the entire show it's like oh you know something's gonna happen to him however the the way that the that the group supported themselves as friends were were dying and one character who was colin if you watch the show you just fall in love with colin he's this little boy from wales and he's so sweet and so endearing and he's the one who he's he's the good he's the good boy and he ends up he ends up dying and he feels like and he even looks at his mother and he's like i don't want i don't want to be dirty and she's like you're not dirty and it was it you i just started crying because that's so that happened so little at that time is that families who were supportive there's so many so many sons and daughters who were just dying on beds because their families had shunned them and it hit something really real one of the things i remember seeing was a a post from my drag mother who was an, who is about 15 years older than me and just saying it's hard for her to watch because it was so real with the of the life that she lived i'm fortunate that i didn't get to live that however um i am so glad i got a little bit of a glimpse into it and the character of jill um she i feel like at first you don't really understand what her purpose there is however you see the overall she ends up becoming the caretaker of the entire group and she is based off of russell t davies and um one of his friends jill it's very loosely based but she was part of the she was part of this group of uh nurses in the 80s and 90s who were unabashed unashamed unafraid to take on hiv aids patients and the one other thing is the soundtrack is killer the soundtrack is amazing oh my god so jump joy division to belinda carlisle it's you know you can put that on and you can divorce yourself from all the sadness because it really gets you pumped up to that excitement and the fun of the club scene in the 80s and the early 90s yeah so i listened to the soundtrack i actually will confess i i hadn't watched this yet because everyone i know who saw it said it was amazing but it's a real bummer and i was i think it came out like february march and i was like i'm completely filled up with bummer i can't do it right now um and and also i i kind of did live that i mean i came in kind of towards the end of the of the situation but i will say first of all did anybody else on this podcast watch it's a sin yes i've seen it did you enjoy it 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's there are it. The performances are so strong, um, and you know, I it is a show that I I had a sort of complicated read on. I mean, I'm not gonna like rehash. I wrote a whole review of it. I think it's a I think it's a beautiful show in in a lot of ways, and and um, I think particularly because the performances are. Um, so effective, it, it, you cannot come away not feeling moved by it is sort of my, my top line reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say I have every intention of watching it. It's just, I have to be in the right headspace to do so. Um, but I will, the thing that I'm so pleased that number one, you brought this into the podcast and number two, it exists or whichever the other way around, um, is between this and say pose. I do think one of the weird things about gay history is that it's not something that's passed down, right? Like you have to, if you're a gay person who's coming out, you have to actively seek that out. Otherwise you're generally unaware. And we're now at least a generation removed from the AIDS epidemic as we knew it in, in the end of the 20th century. So there are a lot of these kids coming out and I'm sure Johnny, you know, there's, oh, it's fine. I'm on prep. And like people have no concept of what the scourge was and how it wiped out an entire generation of gay men. Um, so I'm grateful that this is out, this imposes out there to make sure that this younger generation is aware, like we've been through some serious shit and you need to understand that the survivors, first of all, you need to pay them some, some respect. And secondly, you have to take real responsibility for your own health um, and be aware of the risks out there. So I'm glad that these shows exist for that reason. Yeah. And the agency. I think that's one of the things is that no one else is going to do it for you. You have to be your own champion and be your own protector. Um, I will say, Amma, I do know that you are a big HBO Max fan. <laughs> and um, this is the show that got me to actually subscribe to HBO Max. So Yeah, it's it's shaken out that way. Like, I didn't really expect it. And then looking at all of my shows, I was like, hmm, yes, I am. Yeah. So I just want to let you know, I, I came for It's a Sin and I stayed for a lot of other things. So, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's another one where I think I'm very much in the same headspace as Eric of like, my sister watched it and is like, it is very heavy. So like, it is on the list. And at some point, I will be in a space where I can get into it and enjoy it. But I've heard wonderful things and can't wait to. Yeah, I wanted to get this one out of the way. So I didn't end, <laughs> end everything with this. So we can sure. at least lighten it up later on. Appreciate that. And a quick uh, little sidebar. So pleased that Russell T. Davies is coming back uh, to save Doctor Who. Yay. Thank That's God. Like the best news of the year almost. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to go on to Kate, your first pick. All right. So my first pick is Get Back. And I was like, this is a TV show, right? <laughs> Sure. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. It's, yes it is. it's you know okay. a seven hour plus hour three part documentary um, by Peter Jackson about the that time in 1969 when the Beatles like got together for literally a month in Twickenham Studios and were like, hey, we got to cut an album, and they were really going through growing pains and about to break up, and then eventually they they did cut an album. It became Let It Be, but it didn't come out um, for a couple years. They did Abbey Road first. Anyway, so when I say I cried watching this, what I mean is I wept. <laughs> and, and Eric's knowledge of my teenage Beatlemaniac self, it's this week we can drink, drink. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was a teenager when the anthologies came out and I just was completely enamored by everything having to do with the Beatles. I am so, right, I just am so grateful for 
the the artistry that they produce that's wildly inventive and beautiful and strange and complicated as artists themselves especially my favorite john lennon super complicated human being like mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. to have that kind of in my growing up it just means so much to me so to get this incredibly hypnotic lightly edited seems like but also extremely well edited there were like hours and hours of this and we actually did get a narrative (laughs) right of them being four incredibly talented successful human beings who have lived through this outrageous experience who clearly love each other and are clearly growing apart and like but it but still despite all that like are just like pulling songs out of the ether and you know like maybe like george can work on something but no we have to rehearse the long and freaking winding road again paul like just that level of <laughs> of like detail was so satisfying to watch it was so moving to me and just like the progression of to start from, as my dear friend Sean said, they came into that studio with jack shit and in weeks they were on a rooftop and they sounded like the best band in the world. And like it it was just so moving to me. But I'm going to close with a, uh, also a quote, a quote from Vulture's Craig Jenkins, which I feel like really encapsulated why I think this is such an extraordinary piece of television. Um, and to me specifically, really. Craig Jenkins says, Get Back is a show about process and compromise and the mercurial nature of creativity and the value of an edifying work-life balance. Sometimes, often, great work takes time and inspiration won't show face until distractions in your periphery are sufficiently quieted. There's just no predicting what will happen when you sit down to create, no telling what you're in for. And as a sort of like document, found document that like both demystifies so much about that period in the Beatles history and also like is a real portrait of just artists working. Oh my God, I loved it. And Kate, I don't think you said this is on Disney. It's on Disney Plus. Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, I do. uh, So can you do me a favor? Um, When Kate was a teenager, (laughs) he was an illustrator and she did a print that had how many Beatles references in the Well over a hundred. I'm literally looking at it right now. Wow. Yes. Whoa. Holy Ringo Batman. Right. And I'm going to need Kate to send me a good version of that image. I will. I will. um, So that we can put that up on our social media. Eric's even in it. He's in the Sgt. Pepper scene. Like little little teenager. Mm -hmm. Amazing. (laughs) But I, I think that would be something to um, share with our readers. Yes. So thank you, You're Kate. You're welcome. Um, did anybody else have any other thoughts on Get Back? My kids love Get Back. <laughs> I love Get Back. My children love Get Back. Yes. It's very funny to me. They don't know really much about who the Beatles are, but they have insisted on watching it in 10-minute increments after dinner. Um, my four-year-old sings Get Back with an accent <laughs> now. They know it. <laughs> They know the songs so well that there is a moment when John, like, he he sings two notes, he fumbles to add guitar, and then he tries the two notes again, and my four-year-old was like, he's doing dig a pony. And I was like, <laughs> <Yes>! that's right. <laughs> yeah. Raising the that's youth crazy. correctly. <laughs> <laughs> like what? That's hey, it's way generations. better than being into Baby Shark. So yeah. agreed. But that's yeah. that's three generations removed from the actual yeah. art, right? Yeah. That yeah. speaks to, and I don't think this is you know saying anything anybody doesn't know, but it speaks to the enduring legacy of that yeah. of that band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. yeah, Paul McCartney could get it. Oh in God. That, in that. <laughs> oh. 
You're could speak- and can, just so we're clear. Yeah. Oh. Could and can. You're yeah. speaking my mother's language. You'll listen to the podcast going forward from here. So the scene where Paul and John, they love each other so much where they're singing two of us like as ventriloquist, like angry ventriloquists to each other. Yeah. Like, oh my God, it's just gold. Yeah. It is amazing. So we are going to pass it off to Catherine for her first pick. Okay. So I will also go um, chronologically. Um, I liked WandaVision very much. I was really into it. I covered it a lot. But the thing that I was watching at that same time that gave me the thing (laughs) that I felt like a lot of people were getting from WandaVision was a PBS masterpiece um, BBC adaptation called All Creatures Great and Small. Yes. So good. Um, It is... Uh, If you are unfamiliar, it is an adaptation of a a bunch of books that were written in the 30s and 40s, maybe all the way to the 50s, by a veterinarian um, whose name, his pen name was James Harriet. They were largely autobiographical, but like just loosely fictionalized enough so that everyone could like go on with their lives. Um, And they were then adapted into a, a BBC miniseries that was very popular in the 1970s. The premise is that he is a rural vet in the Yorkshire Dales. And um, in the very beginning of the first, sort of like the beginning of the new version, it is the young James Harriet who has taken this job in Yorkshire. He's Scottish. It's his very first job. He's never really lived away from home before. Um, he has practiced. He's been a, a veterinary student, but he really has no idea what an actual rural practice is like. He uh, moves in with and is a a junior vet to a guy named Siegfried Farnan, (laughs) who's like a real ball buster type, um, you know, doesn't want to believe any other, any sort of other veterinary practices have uh, anything that is worth listening to. And I mean, it, it is teed up to be the most like middle of the road you're like yeah okay it's british people next to cows i got it like i i kind of understand but also the genre it's amazing to me so mm-hmm. i understand the genre like i okay i'm gonna put it on and i'm gonna listening to their accents and they're gonna drink a lot of tea and i'm my brain's not gonna have to do anything and let me tell you by the end of the first episode i was like gripping the furniture i was so over like emotionally overwhelmed by this one guy who i mean the stakes are both extremely small and so so intense it is like whether or not this animal that is somebody's livelihood is going to die and like often they do die it is so sad and like the the, the physicality of it is really intense. And I think everything anybody goes to Ted Lasso for where it's like, but it's a like a non-toxic depiction of masculinity. Like this show fucking blows that out of the water. And it is just the most exquisite. Like it, you could also imagine all of the ways that you could do a show like this and be like, yeah, whatever. All of Britain looks kind of like the 1930s, but like every piece of the production is so lovingly made. The performances are 
And I mean, just it's so hard to nail a show like this so that it hits all of the sentimental notes, but doesn't have that intense, super sweet saccharine thing. And it absolutely nails it. Um, and I I almost know because of my job, I almost there are few shows that I watch more than once. A lot of them I don't even fully finish. But <laughs> this one I watched like fully twice and would happily sit down and watch a third time. I, I just think it's exquisite. And that's my yeah, all creatures great and small. And Kate, you you loved on this show too. Ugh. It's so good. It exquisite and lovely is exactly the way to talk about it. And it is, it's sort of like life and death in a teacup, right? Like it is life and death, whether or not these animals survive for livelihood or just because someone loves them dearly. Um, it's just so beautifully made with such care and intention. And yeah, it is, it's like a, it's like a hug that is not lying to you about what's really going on. Yeah. Right. Like it's, who's been hugging you. Kate? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very intense. No, no, no. I meant like, like, it's not like a, it's a, it's a comforting, but it's not, but it's clear eyed. It's a clear eyed kind of comfort. Yeah. So much escapism. I mean, I, I have written about, and I know there's sort of this, idea of comfort TV as a thing that we all like everyone wants comfort TV they want to turn on fucking Emily in Paris and then just like not look at the world right and the thing with this show is that it is it hits all of those comfort notes but it's not going to let you look away from the world in the same way yeah Yeah, it's so good and and I feel like it's obviously it's very different but I feel like the great in some ways kind of hit that for me too where I was like this is so pleasurable and also so violent like I can't like I don't get the pleasure without (laughs) the violence right like yeah Uh yeah yeah it's good stuff (laughs) well excellent so speaking of small things we're actually going to take a quick break and we will be right back for round two of our picks after these messages Welcome back to the Best of 2021 TV episode. We're going to move right on to our second round of picks. Ama, you're up again. Okay, so my next pick is season two of Love Life. Also, was my first pick HBO? Now I don't remember, but this one is on HBO. (laughs) No, your first pick was Disney+. Plus. Okay, thank you. What I'll say is this, and we've talked a little bit about having a sense of what TV is for you and what TV is not for you. The idea of a quirky but conventionally attractive white woman like having a hard time in love was not super attractive to me so i did not watch season one of love life but season two of love life william jackson harper's romantic lead i had wanted that for quite a while so (laughs) it was one of those things where if you define your brand loudly enough on the internet people will respond to you so as an example this will quick story but it'll come back around so in the finale of the good place there is a calendar that Chidi, who's played by William Jackson Harper, makes for Eleanor. And the NBC store does not sell it. I yelled at them online several times. I was like, it would be the easiest money grab in the world for you to make this calendar. And I would buy one for every consecutive year that it existed. So I was very upset. And this was like in February of that year. And then in August for my birthday, one of my roommates got the calendar made for me through Shutterfly. Oh, um, so, that's amazing. So to say that I wanted William Jackson Harper's romantic lead, like in my house as a decorative item, <laughs> very serious. So you found your new good place. Essentially, yes. So I was in from the beginning is what I'm saying for that. But I also think that as I was watching it, the idea of 
a love story for a black male romantic lead was something that like we don't necessarily see touched as often the way that they go through like from an anthology perspective each romantic relationship and what it meant to him as well as how perception of race kind of impacts all of those things it was just really fun and interesting and intricate to watch and it felt really fresh and jessica williams who plays one of the main romantic leads you see her pop up a couple times is fantastically charismatic and we haven't been seeing enough of her in recent years so i really enjoyed that hard agree i love her yeah she's fantastic and they're so good together um and then in particular their pandemic episode i think is among one of the best ones that i've seen like it's up there with mythic quest which Mm -hmm. had an exceptional one and it was the same kind of thing where it kind of hit upon so many pieces of the pandemic like sharing space with people who are taking it at different levels of seriousness uh the feeling of what it is like to spend parts of the pandemic by yourself uh that feeling when kind of like the loneliness and isolation of the pandemic then conflicted directly with the racial uprising and then all of those things about like working for a company that wants to say the right things to the public but can't say the right things to its own people and there were so many pieces of it that I just hadn't seen portrayed on TV really well or at all and it just hit at the series at like just the right point and then the resolution of it was also really nice so I just think it was a really fun and interesting season of television on its own and I'm always really interested in like individual seasons of TV that can stand on their own and I think it's just a really great tight 10 episodes fairly straightforward to watch and i really really enjoyed it had anybody else watched love life i haven't no it's on my list yeah (laughs) one of the like maybe tippy top of things that i have not had a chance to watch and i'm very sad about it yeah i'm curious how did you go from anna kendrick to william jackson harbin and like harper excuse me in the as the leads like that seems kind of interesting like going from season one to season two are they different worlds how does it work so it's in the same universe and essentially there's like a handoff of sorts where the end of the first season was and i don't know that it spoils anything to say this but like a wedding for anna kendrick's character and the man that she ends up picking so the wedding party they kind of hand off. Mm-hmm. So she's in a bar for their wedding party. She goes up to the bar. William Jackson Harper comes up because his wife um, works with Anna Kendrick's character. So they kind of like pass for a moment in those spaces. They interact a few other times in the series, but it's an interesting kind of handoff. And it's like, it's very clear that they're in the same world, but they don't interact with each other very much. That's really cool. So th- like it's, there's intention there and it's, it's an anthology, but it's still connected. very much all yeah. connected. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's really fun. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ama, for putting it on my radar. Cause I'll be honest, like I, I, I maybe had heard about the Anna Kendrick version, but I was, I had not watched it, but you've sold me very convincingly. So thank you. Sure. I will go for my next pick, which is Arcane League of Legends on Netflix. And if you had told me a month ago that I would be putting a cartoon in my top three, much less a cartoon (laughs) about a video game, I would have been insulted. And yet here we are. Here we we Um, are. Here we are. Yeah. Uh, I'll be very clear. I've never played League of Legends. I don't know anything about it. I don't even know where I would find it. Um, it, That's the video game that this series is based on. Um, I only watched this because I think I was watching Great British Bake Off. And after you finish watching an episode, Netflix puts on a commercial for something else. And this popped up. And I was like, 
what is this animation style? It's, hmm. it's beautiful. And so, you know, I started to watch it and I said to my partner, I was like, have you ever played this League of Legends game? He's like, no, I've heard of it, but, you know, we'll, we'll try it. And um, the animation is incredibly lush. It, like, there's something about it. It was, I was like, this feels very French to me. And sure enough, it's a French animation studio. And um, it is that's the thing that hooks you first is just how beautiful if you've seen um the spider-verse uh film and 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 thought that animation was interesting to you Mm -hmm. this is like that but amplified with kind of i I feel like um borderline art nouveau style french influences it's really beautiful like i i I can't sell this highly enough um and i and i'm not that good at describing art (laughs) sorry that's okay um But uh, it's not just the standard form. They also, they're very inventive and they play with different styles of animation. There's one character that's having a mental health crisis and the way that they visually represent that is super interesting. And there's um, certain action sequences where it's like a completely different show, but it all still works. Like it just, it's seamlessly. And and the animators are incredibly skillful storytellers and I'm, I'm blown away. I've never seen anything like it, but the real hook here for me is actually the story, the characters and the world that it creates. This is a crime drama. It's a class drama. It's a court drama. It's a family drama. It's a dystopian drama. It's all of those things with just unbelievable action sequences. So if you're like the family survival aspects of walking dead, you'll get this something similar here without the zombies. Uh, If you like the sexually charged politics of Game of Thrones, you'll get that here without the dragons. But um, it's really, the the first three episodes are actually not the greatest introduction to the show, I will say that, because it's set in the past from where the bulk of the show takes place. it's still, though, in media res. So, like, you're trying to figure out what's going on because there are very complicated relationships that you're expected to kind of figure out very quickly. And then after episode three, it jumps into kind of quote-unquote present day where um, these two street urchins, it's it's kind of steampunky. Um, it's the second steampunk pick I did this year, which was... Yeah, it's like really feeling a vibe for you here. <laughs> not intentional because that's not my, my thing usually. But it's kind of like Dickensian street urchins that are going and they accidentally stumble upon this incredible technological magical thing, blah, 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 that ends up like exploding into this huge new subplot that kind of drives the story forward. Um, but it is riveting. Like, I know this sounds so overhyped for a cartoon about a video game and yet i'm telling you it's it's really good um this like i i just couldn't stop watching it we would like it was, it'd be 11 30 at night 12 39 be like just go to the next episode i don't want to stop like every episode has like these gasp inducing moments there's terrific villains flawed but like are, is, are they half hour episodes or I think they're like 45 minutes okay which is impressive because it's all fully drawn I was reading and I, I couldn't see an actual statistic for this but what I was reading was each episode was several million dollars. This was in the works for six years this show and, and like and every- like no one knows about it. Like, <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's hugely popular, right? But it's not hugely popular with most people that you talk to because it's mostly video game nerds that are watching it. Um, but yeah, it was in their like Netflix's top show for the week that it was out, Damn. right? Um, in, in like multiple countries. But nobody else I know is talking about it. But I'm I'm serious. Like every bit of the time and the money that went into this project is on that screen. It is just incredibly well delivered you've got Haley steinfeld is one of the lead characters uh the other sister that voice work i've never heard of her before her name is ella parnell but incredible voice work um and i i have to say if you have not checked it out if you have any interest in anime uh, although it's 
in English, so it's not like you're reading subtitles or anything. Um, even if you don't care about video games, if you don't care about um, anything along in those those vibes, still give it a shot. Um, again, the first three episodes not super great for getting you in, but once it goes to the present day, I was completely hooked and just gobsmacked by the finale so that's my has nobody else watched that on this panel no i just get more episodes of great british bake-off after i finish the new episode so <laughs> yeah. I, it's not putting steampunk into my algorithm for some reason i don't know but it sounds <laughs> my nephew sounds like he'd be really into this well and it's not putting it into my algorithm either which is odd because i watch a great deal of animation to the point where it's out of character for me to not have an animated show in my three for this episode but I'm going to seek it out because it sounds like something that I would potentially get really into. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't shown it up for there for you because like it kept popping up for us and finally it's like, let's just give it a shot. So with that being said, I'm going to pass the baton over to Johnny for his second pick. All right. My second pick is definitely not a downer. It's a lot of fun. Um, I think a lot of people, a number of you had already picked this in your tops, but it's Hacks um, f- um, f- with uh, Gene Smart and it was on HBO and that's, it wouldn't again, wouldn't have known about this without, uh, without it's a sin so i guess everything comes from something sad becomes something great so i don't so i mean let, very, let's very briefly talk about it because i think everyone i don't know if everyone's seen it but gene smart is playing deborah vance who is uh the kind of the queen of las vegas comedy who has been at her hotel the palmetto for was oh, 2500 shows and she has a loyal following of housewives from a across the country and um then she quickly finds out that her show that her show is being replaced by pentatonics the indignity of it all um, <laughs> uh, so i go uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna be quiet because i'm joining the gay men's chorus because i'm sure some of them have loved that but i just i'm moving along and to, to so then they um ava daniels who is uh She's a comedy writer and she ends up getting kind of canceled very early on. And she is brought in to be a joke writer for her because she really has no other options. And it's only because her agent is, is also Deborah Vance's agent. The one thing I actually love about that is the fact that the agent is basically beholden to the dim-witted secretary receptionist, who is the daughter of the owner of the, of the agency. Mm-hmm. So, which really cracked me up. I was like, mm, nepotism is a real thing. And oh. it, it wasn't, it was like, I was like, it's, kind of cartoonish but not really because this happens all the time all someone the time. with no experience no re- no reason to be there is actually calling the shots so anyway she flies in and i think the the thing that i enjoyed about it the most is the fact that both of them are so headstrong and fe- and really have kind of a bit a bit of a diluted sense of where they actually are and what their place in life right is right now Deborah Vance still thinks that she can really do no wrong. She has been at the top of her game for so many years, but really at this point, she's, she is really a shadow of her former self and she's, and she's at the end of her career. Um, but, uh, it, Ava is still also kind of deluding the fact that she thinks is, Oh, just a one and done. She's nothing. She really is just, she's a, she's a hack. Hence the name. And she really has really done a disservice for women in comedy that she's nothing more than a QVC seller of caftans, which 
a caftan in Las Vegas is perfect. So she knew her audience right there. Um, But some of the other characters in there, you learn a lot about, you know, the dynamic, her, like Marcus, who is Deborah Vance's chief operating officer. The fact that you have a chief operating officer just shows that's the level that you're at. And he has a very complicated relationship. And you start to find out that he started out as a fan of hers and became her COO over time. And that is, there is that magnetism. There is that hilarity, that root gut knowledge that you have to have as a comedian that made it so endearing. Cause I, cause she's a fucking terrible person. Um, but she's real. That's the one thing she is. She's, you know, she's t- leaving, she's leaving Ava in the middle of the desert and t- taking a helicopter to tell her to go you know, figure out, take the car back home after it breaks down um, and tricks her tricks Ava into buying an antique from a dealer who, absolutely despises everything that Deborah's van stands for. But you know what though? That's who she is. Um, I think over the course of the season, I, and I really banged it out in two days because it was just so engaging. Um, so one thing is that you just really get to understand is that the, the person who I really at first empathized with was Ava. Cause like, Oh, she wants to get her start. But at the end it was, I was rooting for Deborah. I was like, she, she is the character who is exactly who she is. She She's not going to change she, with all of her imperfections being a horrible mother, kind of a terror of a boss and really not that good of a person. She is who she is. She is real. She has fears and she has this vulnerability. You really start to get to see. And at the very end of the season, you kind of see that Ava's almost about to betray her in a way that is going to be detrimental. And this is a great setup for the second season. I mean, some of the other characters in there, just some of the cut side characters with um, um, Mark and Delicato, um, that was uh, from ugly Betty and it's just, he's grown up. He's, he was the, he was the nephew from the show and he's now this grown up sassy as sassy as hell gay boy. And is um, her purse is a, uh, Deborah's personal assistant, and I just love that little tie-ins for that. And then Johnny Sibley is uh, the water maintenance worker who ends up having a little bit of a side affair with Marcus, which is just kind of more silly and just an excuse to have Johnny Sibley take his shirt off, which I have no problem. No problems. That not a problem. (laughs) So I am completely one hundred percent in on it, and I cannot wait for a second season. And really, you know, Jean Smart. I mean, going back to designing women, she is just crafted a career that is unlike anyone she does comedy she can do drama she really can't do any wrong and i am i am so glad she had a renaissance in 2021 yeah i defy you to tell me one bad performance with gene smart anyone nope don't have it they don't, they don't exist. Nope. She doesn't do those. Nope. It doesn't no. exist. No. Um, and I'm so glad that she, you mentioned it's the Renaissance, but this is really the era of Jean mm-hmm. Smart. And mm-hmm. I loved this show. I, I, it was on my top three. I, I let Johnny have it because I'm I'm nice. I'm pleasant, damn it. Um, <laughs> but no, like for me, like uh, what I loved about the show was the frank observations of the differences between millennials and boomers Mm. which i thought slapped both ways but we're Mm -hmm. also very good at showcasing why both of those generations 
have qualities that should be admired because Deborah is a hard worker. And that's the thing they kind of really like she earned everything that she got and he had a lot taken away from her. Um, she did. And you I, know what? Oh, I'm sorry. No, the, I, would, go ahead. I was going to say there was a scene. The best scene, I think, in the entire se- series was when she was at that small comedy club and mm-hmm. there was the douchey bro who was mm-hmm. think he's just so funny. He thinks he's so yeah. funny. And mm-hmm. she t- pays him a million dollars to never do comedy ever again and i defy that any female comedian and even i've done a little bit of stand-up too and i would defy anyone who is not a straight white bro who would have loved to have a million dollars to tell one horrible piece of shit like that to never do comedy ever again do we have to limit Uh, it to one um um, we have an actual stand-up comic on this podcast ama did you watch hacks I did watch Hacks, and I came across it because once something comes out that's about stand-up comedy and people know you do stand-up comedy, they will beat you into submission into watching it. And I had been burned by this principle before because (laughs) a lot of people told me I would love Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. "Mm." (laughs) So then people are like, have you seen Hacks? Have you seen Hacks? I'm like, again? But I did go into it, and I really, really liked it. I think that... Again, some of the generational pieces of it, and this even goes back to like other stuff that I had been doing earlier in the year. Like one of the best books I read was um, when women invented television, and it talks about like five seminal women in the early stages of TV that essentially gave us the landscape that we have now. So thinking about like generationally what women in the position of Deborah Vance in early stages of comedy did to pave the way for women that are doing it now was really, really interesting to me. And I do agree that like it cuts both ways and it was really fun to kind of see that interplay, which was something of a theme for TV this year. It's happened more than once. And I know we'll probably get to it later with other examples of it, but yeah, it was so much fun and so interesting. And then again, too, like it was one I'd kind of been watching out for because the creators and writers of it are members of the teams that did broad city as well as the good place. So I was like, it's got the component parts that I want. I just have to see if I'm going to like it. And I loved it. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that you did. And real quick point to that, who would you pay? Like the week that episode came out, I asked a ton of female comedians, like, who would you pay $1 million to stop doing comedy? The answers were illuminating and none of them were wrong. So (laughs) if anybody wants those off air, we can do that at a later date. But it is, it's, the candidates are numerous. I bet. I bet. Well, thank you. I want to keep things moving. So I want to go to Kate for your second pick. All right. So my second pick is only murders in the building. Um, Mm. So like if you had told me that in 2021, there would be a murder mystery television show set in a grand old apartment building in New York city with Steve Martin, Martin short and Selena Gomez is a trio of true crime loving sleuths. I'd be like, why the hell am I not writing this show? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it just, I, you know, I kind of like came into it. I was like, is this going to like, are they going to pull it off? Like, it just seems like, I I don't know. And like, they pulled it off. They really pulled it off. It is an absolutely delightful show. Uh, You know, some episodes are better than others, but like, as soon as that frozen cat came out of the freezer, I was like, well, this (laughs) (laughs) Evelyn's frozen corpse is 
the sign that yes, I am in, I am in for your show. Um, I rewatched it, just rewatched it with my parents. Um, it's really great rewatch. It just reaffirms how clever and satisfying and how well crafted kind of all of the mystery components are. And also how, how sweet it is and how sad it is and how deeply, deeply rooted it is in character and in sense of place. Right. Right. Like just seeing, and I felt the same way when I was watching the rooftop concert and get back, I was like, look at all the people on the street of the city. (laughs) (laughs) Like it just, I still miss that. We're we're always going to miss that feeling, right? Of the city before any city before, not that Mm -hmm. like we can't go to a city now, but it's just like, that just gave me a feeling of like community when I'm still really missing it. Um, been a stan uh for steve martin since roxanne which i think makes me a rock stan and yes i was like seven yes. years old um, um <laughs> so good and like and he and marty short like they just are so good together and selena gomez was completely charming i thought with all of them in there together and also there's just like a, a, a bassoonist femme fatale sorry spoilers like <laughs> it's just i really loved it um it's something I didn't see coming in 2021, and I'm glad that a ton of people watched it because uh, it was really charming. So good. Mm-hmm. And we didn't mention Nathan Lane. Oh, God, yes. So good. It, so good. And Sting. Like, so yeah, good. And, and Sting. And Sting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Tina Fey. Yeah, Tina Fey. Tina Fey. I mean, also, also We're just naming Amy Ryan. <laughs> Amy Ryan. Yeah, Jane Lynch, oh. at, Jane Lynch as... Um, Saz Pataki, like amazing. <laughs> oh my Steve gosh. Martin so stunt double so, and keeps yes. stealing all of his women, yeah, and, which is and, incredible. And, and the, her physical performance in that episode, well, both of them, every time oh. they're just like mirroring each other. God, it was so funny. And also in the very last episode, without giving too many spoilers, the scene where Steve Martin is like trying to get into the elevator, I was just yes. crying oh laughing. It gave. It gave real on Vatsnik from Father of the Bride Part yes. 2, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. perfect. Yeah. It's like, I'm totally in for the fact that they swapped out Chevy Chase for Selena oh Gomez. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> These are the three amigos that I want in my just, 2022. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. No, it's it's such, it is a show of people who are really good at their craft, yes. just luxuriating. And, and kind of craft. like the, I mean, clearly... They had ambitions for it, but not like in a, they're they're just trying to say something about people, right? Like it's, I feel like it had a good sort of um, match of ambition to to genre to mode, right? Like it wasn't overreaching, I thought. And anyways, oh god, and and the episode with um with Nathan Lane's son, where it's all mm. oh, yes, so good. Yeah, it's an incredible individual piece yes. of television. Like every now and again, there's like one episode of something, and you're like, they've done something so beautiful mm-hmm. with this, and it was. So fantastic. People in the city talk too fucking much. (laughs) (laughs) I feel very seen. But with that being said, this takes the investigation in a whole new direction. (laughs) I am going to pass it to Catherine for her second pick. Uh, So the show that I, one of the shows that I was most surprised by actually um, is a drama on Apple TV plus called for all mankind. Mm. Um, I watched the first season um and felt like it was an interesting show but it was it it took a while to find itself and in fact took so long to find itself in the first season that you were sort of still in this place where you were wondering if it knew what kind of show it was in the very beginning it is a very simple premise which is like what if the space race except 
um, the Russians got to the moon first. And you're like, well, that's a sort of interesting thought experiment. What what if? And for too long, the answer is like, yeah, not a lot's different. Like, <laughs> and as, as a television show, obviously that like creates problems um, from a momentum standpoint. Their chief um, move there is to say that because the Russians send women to space, the United States also then includes women in the space program. And I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. I love an astronaut, love a lady astronaut. <laughs> um, and it sort of accelerates in the first season to the point where they establish a moon base, but it, it really, you're like, I, I can't, it is the, um, alternate history kind of story where you're waiting for the part where it's interesting that it's an alternate <laughs> history. In the second season, there is a jump forward in time a little bit, and it is so much more fully itself. Um, you have a established space program that in so many ways echoes and like is familiar from and has some characters in history from, you know, the 60s and early 70s in, in the space program, there are sort of like big, important space race and Cold War events that get pulled in through the the series. Some of the most terrifying parts for me are how realistic the deep fakes are of historical figures. Mm. It makes me very upset <laughs> about the possibilities and also our democracy. However, mm -hmm. great for fiction. Mm -hmm. But um, it, what I truly did not see coming is that like by the end of that second season, it is operating at like unbelievable mid 2000s prestige cable drama plotting thing that thing where you get to the last episode and you're like oh shit all the plots are coming together <laughs> like and you're just on the floor like all of these things that they have actually been seeding for so long that you didn't even realize are or like being pulled together in this beautifully orchestrated final sort of set piece so many set pieces all next to each other i don't want to spoil but something happens in that last episode involving duct tape <laughs> that i like laid on the floor and was like yelling and my husband was like what is wrong with you and i was just yelling like the duct tape though the duct tape and he did not find that illuminating um but that joe <laughs> uh that show i just i i can't yeah it's fucking it fucking slaps that show it's nice. so good i just got a new giant inspired by you Catherine. i don't even know if i told you this yet i got a giant tv on sale target Black Friday. Ooh, Dude, yeah. not as big yeah. as your Come on, yeah. giant business TV. lady. Yeah, yes. I got a job. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, so, and it it comes with, like, Apple on it, which before I just was watching, like, like I watched Dickinson on my iPad, which actually is a great place. It's a really intimate show to watch on your iPad. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. It's a good size for that. Yeah. yeah, but I am excited to go back to start watching Space Joe, because I'm kind of in that first season rut where I'm like, this is interesting, and Joel Kinnaman is in this. 
Um, <laughs> well, it's oh, so fascinating go. that we do keep trying to make Joel Kinnaman. <laughs> we do. Yes. We do. He's yeah. always there. Like <laughs> so many attempts. Yes. He's, he's in this. And yeah. He's, he's in yep. a period. It's Ron Moore, too, isn't it? It's Ron Moore. Yeah. It is. It is Ron Moore. <laughs> By the way, second season, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Ron Moore. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so, so. so anyway, so this, I, I cannot watch it on my giant TV, which feels like that's where Moon Show Space Show should live. Moon Show does belong yeah. there. Yes. Sure. I, I'm I, really excited to see this because one of the, I'm a huge alternate history fan and um, I half of my YouTube watching is either it's alternate history and the other half is drag race <laughs> stuff so sure, yes. um, I mean you know, it's it's like you can't get enough of those words but the, the one problem I have with it is that a lot of it it's really thought out it's really people are digging into history and they are, they really are uncovering some like some really interesting ideas unfortunately it goes into a very scary libertarian uh, viewpoint <laughs> rather than just kind of following how the how the world was going at that point yeah. so this seems to be taking it out from that really scary <laughs> precipice that i would rather not talk about yeah. so um i'm very fat because it's because it, there is something to say it's like what take one piece of history and tweak it just a little bit and at first it doesn't seem like it's anything but you know it is that butterfly effect that yeah everything changes from there it's so great the other thing i i mean ron moore also there's all kinds of little tiny cultural stuff that like didn't need to change but he just did change because like yeah why not i don't have any reason why and one of them is that he just randomly decided the beatles never broke up which i think (laughs) is Is that the thing that happens in the last episode they just that is one of the things. That is one of the parts he of the thing. He holds them together physically with duct tape. With that's, duct tape. That's yeah. But did the Rolling Stones then break up in 1970? See, these are the questions. That's, that's okay, question. honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like that moment in Get Back where you're like, I can see a future where they just did this. Oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, anyway. Yes. Well, that sounds great. I, I will admit that I've been holding off on Apple TV Plus until I can get like a really good, solid group of shows that I know I'm going to dig. And so that sounds like one. And the other one I've been told is amazing is Foundation. Uh, is, <laughs> has, <laughs> and, all right. Good to know. Dickinson. 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 There we go. Okay. And that one does look great. So yeah. with that, we are going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with our final round of picks for best TV shows of the year. We will be right back. We are back with the last round of our best of 2021 television episode. Before we wrap things up, I want to ask our panel, where can people find you on social media, Ama? I am best on Twitter and Instagram at Ama Marfo, both places. Great. And Johnny? Um, I am on pretty much everything. Johnny Minogue, one word, no H, spelled like Kylie. Mm. And Kate? Uh, so I am on Twitter at Kate Reculia, occasionally. Uh, but if you want to see cute cat pictures, I'm on Instagram at Gomez Rack. That is my cat. He is very handsome. He is very handsome, and we endorse the cat pics. And Catherine, how about you? I am way too much on Twitter uh, <laughs> at K Van Aaron. And you can find me at Eric Resniak on all of the things and make sure you're following at culture underscore debate on Twitter and at great pop culture debate on Instagram. So with that being said, we're going to get back into this final picks. Ama, what's up? Okay. So this is a show that came out late enough in the year that I was like, oh shit, when it was good enough that it had to shuffle the rest of my list. But 
I'm going to pick Southside Season 2. So Season 1 of Southside originally aired on Comedy Central, and it was one of two shows, along with the other two, that moved over to HBO for its second season. And both of those shows leveled up for their second seasons, and it's always really nice to see a show that you already really enjoy just get better. Uh, Southside hit another level this year, just so dense with jokes, so silly, so specific. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, it is like a buddy comedy with two guys that live in the South side of Chicago who work for like a rent to own business. So like, in, like furniture, rent lamps and things like that. But they also have side hustles because they don't want that to be their only job. So there's one episode where they rent furniture out for like a party promoter who's holding a party for another party promoter that had just recently passed away. So it's like part funeral, part like celebration of life. Uh, there's one where they decide that they can use the truck as an ambulance and kind of like pay on the side for people that don't want to use actual ambulances. And it's just so silly. They have like a relationship with the police as well. So there are like two police officers that are kind of part of their world. Uh, they have excellent guest stars. Uh, Lil Rel Howery showed up a couple times. Chance the Rapper shows up. I love him. He's And his episode is fantastic. Like he writes a play. And they're trying to stage it while everybody's um, in the basement of the store for a tornado and everybody like gives him constructive criticism. So it comes out with a different version of the play. <laughs> it's amazing. But yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that the first season was really funny and like really specific to like certain pieces of Chicago. And then this season they had a really elaborate Ferris Bueller tribute episode, which was amazing because John Hughes more or less famously didn't believe black people existed in Chicago, which is crazy when you say it as a sentence. Yeah. So Ferris Bueller through the eyes of black characters who get to enjoy Chicago is like a very different thing, but it's got all of those references that like make it perfect. And yeah, just, and it's so, so, so funny. And like, it's just a good reminder that like anything that Basar, Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle, who also do Sherman Showcase, which is another amazing show, everything they touch, we should watch all the time. It's fantastic. Awesome. Has anybody else watched this one? I just started watching the first season and honestly it was because of what you had kind of put out there. Um, and I was curious to see what it was about. And I, because I also saw that the episodes were pretty short. They're only like 20 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And I, I started giggling incessantly like this, this is the, these are the people from the South side I wanted to see unlike the Gallagher's this season. So I absolutely loved it. I cannot, I was I didn't get into season two yet. I just got into season one, but I am already hooked. I like, I, everything about it. It's just, there's a little bit of the little wacky. There is a little grittiness. There's almost kind of like a, a bit of a superstore vibe to it. And first of all, it's like, they're yeah. all like huddled in the break room, but it's like superstore, but like, much more gritty and i love it and that make so it, it still has that wackiness of it but honestly it's it's just so well done and you just didn't i didn't want it to end it, like the only reason why i did is because it was about 4 30 in the morning and i had to get to work the next day so that was the only reason why i turned it off so i'm so glad i got turned on to Southside this year I'm very glad that you did. And yeah, it's like a really good spiritual successor to something like Broad City or like Detroiters, which I, I love Detroiters so much. And it's got like that same kind of soul to oh it. Oh my God, Detroiters. Oh, and I miss it all the time. So this is like the closest spiritual successor to that. And man, they're firing at such a high level this year. Like it's actually now starting to show up on like best of the year list. And I'm like, thank God people aren't overlooking it because it's so, so good. It really is. And it's, 
I had never heard of it. And the fact that it's now starting to get a little bit more um, praise that it really rightly deserves, it's fantastic. And I hope more people see it. Tell everybody. I'm telling everybody. I will. Tell it. Southside. We should do a podcast about it. That's what we should do. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alma. That's great. Uh, So I will go on to my second pick, which is What We Do in the Shadows Season Mm 3 on FX. All you can also watch it on Hulu. Um, So I had actually never watched an episode of this show prior to 2021. because I am a classless idiot with no taste. So, so it would seem. Sorry. Yeah. Join the classless side over here. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I always knew I would like it. It's just I, I couldn't you know, find the time to make it. And then I started to see the promo for season three. And I was like, you know what? We should just watch this. Just, just put it on. And so I think we burned through all 20 episodes of seasons one and two and maybe two nights. They're just mm-hmm. so easy to watch. It's like Pringles, right? And um, just instantly hooked. And then season three came along. And what I thought was already a very solid, weird, funny little show, in my opinion, blossomed in season three into something really incredible. And I, I'm just so in, in love with the season. If you aren't aware, this is a mockumentary that follows a group of vampires, three actual vampires, their human caretaker and their energy vampire roommate, who live in Staten Island, New York. Uh, Taika Waititi is one of the creators, and it's based off of a movie starring him, although you do not have to have watched that to enjoy the show. It's a completely different set of characters, although his character does make some cameos. That's said it is on hulu highly recommend watching it it's hilarious it's it's all of the kind of raw material that was in the show but just with a completely different set of vampires um the first two seasons were absurd and broadly comic but in my opinion this season they really honed in on both the comedy and also the soul of of the characters and that's a kind of weird thing to say about vampires but um each of the leads got a really satisfying personal arc that made for wonderful television you've got the former gypsy nadia who is enshrined as the co-leader of the vampire council and she gets reacquainted with her human soul which now resides in a terrifying animated doll um you have my, my, my personal favorite um centuries old middle eastern warlord nandor um who yearns for mortal love and uh confidential to nandor i am waiting i am not that far from staten island you can get it whenever you want it like 100 (laughs) and you can go there for free absolutely you get on the ferry you can get on this ferry um Add a girl. In addition to his his yearning for for connection, he also contemplates the realities of living forever. Guillermo, their familiar, who is unwittingly the most accomplished vampire hunter in the tri-state area, who continues to come into his own. And God bless him, British Ponce Laszlo and and uh, energy vampire Colin Robinson cement a most unlikely friendship, <laughs> culminating in a shocking final cliffhanger uh, <laughs> that absolutely left me speechless. But um, this season had so many incredible moments from the cloak of duplication bit with uh, K. Van Novak, who, who is Nandor, acting out all of the other characters <laughs> pretending to be Nandor, which was amazing and it really showed off like he's got comic chops because yeah, that's yeah. a tour de force of different performances there that horrifying siren encounter between laszlo and colin robinson um the bonkers wellness center episode uh <laughs> with <Chris laughs> summer killing it as the quote post vampire leader and then um to me the, the high point of the whole thing was the episode where the sire who's like the progenitor of all vampires escapes from the vampire ca- vampire accounts and they have to hunt him him down and you've got the regular group 
plus the count, which I'm not going to get into the whole count thing because that's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> tracking him down to a sporting goods store and trying to get him back under control, and uh, it's it's just classic. You've got um, Laszlo and the swallowed harmonica, which is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> What? I could not stop laughing. <laughs> it uh, killed me. Oh my god! Just ugh. The count and the power wheels. Thinking he was mentally <laughs> controlling it. The hellhound. Like the entire episode was a plus. And I, I literally while watching the episode. I was like, this show has hit it. It's hit the peak. It's hit the stride. This is where it needs to be. Um, but for me, ultimately, what made it my show of the year was every Friday since this show has ended. I come home and I get genuinely sad that there's no new what we do in the shadows for me to watch. Like it's actually a moment where I was like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess I'll find something else. But um, uh, honestly, I don't think I enjoyed any other show this year as much as I enjoyed what we do in the shadows. So if you have not watched it like myself, um, stop being a classless uh, boor and check it out on FX and Hulu. I, I know Ama watched it clearly. <laughs> did anybody else watch this season? It's my baby. Did you, did Such you know, nice I'm going to set you up, Catherine. Did you know Catherine talked to oh, Matt Barry? <laughs> oh my God. Really? Yeah. I wrote a profile of Matt Barry this year. It was a good time. Uh, oh, um, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that show is I think that show is fucking incredible. I think um, it is the kind of show that is so good that it you sort of it disguises how hard it is to be that mm -hmm. good. Um, and I think it, there are a few things that are better than a comedy that really understands itself and its strengths. I think the finale Donald Logue shows up in the finale <laughs> yes, and like yes. even thinking about it just makes me want to cry because it's the stupidest the stupidest <laughs> fucking jokes I I I don't even I can't I do think it's worth noting just a little easter egg if you didn't know Matt Berry is like a very um well-known actor in the UK and is much less known here he has a show that he um plays a semi-fictionalized version of himself called Toast of London and in the finale he sits down and plays the piano and it's the Toast of London theme oh. that Matt Berry also wrote because he's also a pop star he is a legend <laughs> keep course. going so and, and to that point when I noticed that I then tweeted at Catherine I was like you're the person that knows the answer to this is that the theme from Toast of London to which she then replied yes it was <laughs> so yep and it's created by one of the one of the pair from the Flight of the Concords. So yeah, yeah Jermaine yeah. Clement and Taika Waititi wrote the the film, um, and Jermaine was the showrunner for. He was involved with the sort of first season, but actually, the one of the showrunners now is Paul Sims, who's like a. I mean, the reason the show works so well, Paul Sims is a sitcom sort of. I mean, he he is responsible for a lot of the best sitcoms of the last two decades. He understands the form better than maybe anyone else. And Stephanie Robinson, who is a, a newer writer, but who is just incredibly good at her job. She wrote the da Jackie Daytona episode for season two. So good. So, yeah, great yeah. show. Yeah. So if we have not convinced you, I don't know what will, but please, please check out what we do in the shadows. Uh, I'm going to kind of pass it to Johnny for your third pick. All right. Awesome. So my third pick is Kevin can fuck himself um, on most promotional things. They just say Kevin can F himself, but... This is a We're blue podcast. You're fine. Uh, 
I was, oh, I, we, we, we'd have to bleep out the first part anyway. So, um, uh, but yeah, so Kevin Can Fuck Himself is a, is a, I don't know if anyone else has seen it. It is a dark comedy that is stars Annie Murphy, who is best known as playing Alexis Rose in Schitt's Creek. Um, this character is not a bit Alexis at all. And the whole world is very different. Um, it actually exists in two kind of simultaneous parallel universes. It's got the, it's first a multi-camera sitcom comedy, just the typical laugh track world that has existed since I Love Lucy and the Cramdens and Honeymooners. Um, it's, a, it's just the boorish husband who has a wife who is, you know, too good. She's, she's too good for him, and just a bunch. It's just the man child that Kevin, who is who is the I, he's the titular character, but he really is not the main character. It is, it is um, Annie Murphy's character, Allison. Um, when she is interacting with him, it's the long suffering wife. She very much has the same feel of, you know. Alice Cramden, um, Deborah Barone, Lois Griffin. It's just, it's, it's like somebody who has absolutely no reason being with this person, but they end up being there. So you know, he has two sidekicks, um, uh, Kevin's father and then his next door neighbor. Um, and there, and there's also his next door neighbor, um, uh, Patty, who is her brother, is one of the three Stooges that they they work with. That they're just watching sports, living in Wisdom Mass, uh, watching a lot of Pats, a lot of Sox. So anyone who grew up in the New England area knows these people very, very well. Um, but when she is away from from him, it is a single camera, dark very edgy uh, drama which really dives into the the like the tr the terror and the frustration and the misery of her living in this experience and she's just trying to make her life better she wants to have a nice have a nice house the first episode she has a coffee table which she bought at goodwill but it's from pottery barn and he smashes it and everyone makes fun of her that she's so hoity-toity and she's really not she's she works at a liquor store and she she wants to do better than she can, but she's being weighed down by this 250-pound man beast who cares more about Bill Belichick's sweatshirt than he does about his wife. So um, it gets it gets really dirty. It gets really dark when she is looking to find a way of killing him um she, the one the only other person who can transcends the multi-camera verse to the single camera verse is um patty who is a unlikely ally within um allison's world she is she's gritty she's dark she smokes on the on the, on the porch and really she has no time for allison at first she just thinks she's just a flitty idiot who has has absolutely nothing to say. But really what it is is that she wants to just break out of this world that she's locked herself into. One of the funniest things is they end up driving up to New Hampshire at one point during the scene, and she, Allison is trying to navigate 
uh, with some backcountry drug dealers, and she has absolutely no way of knowing how to <laughs> uh, communicate with any sort of drug dealers. This is not something that Alexis Rose would have any problem with, but it's very, it's very, she's so desperate and she's so nervous, and you can see it on her face that she has no idea what she's doing, but the only thing she wants to do is change her change her situation in life so badly that she's willing to take these drastic means to do it um it takes a little while to get used to the very quick change from the multi multi camera to the single camera but after episode two you really get very comfortable with it and i was i'm excited to see what happens in on season two um because you see one of the three stooges who actually gets pulled into the single camera verse which um will really tie into something that will happen for season two which i can't wait to come out Hmm. And this is on AMC, correct? This is on AMC, correct. Has anybody else watched it? I have not watched this one. I have. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it's a show that I find... um, I found myself admiring it a lot. I think it is... I think it is a fascinating experiment. Like, I'm very into the premise of it and the kind of switching between the language of the multicam and the the multicam sitcam and the sitcam com and the single cam prestige drama um and i think a lot of the performances are really fascinating i think it also you know it has this kind of interesting history it came out of um uh, sitcoms that were the the um Kevin, what are those shows called? Oh, like King of Queens. Yeah, Kevin can wait. King of Queens. Yeah. yeah, and Jim Kevin Bellucci, can wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was this, you know, um, an actress who was written off of Kevin can wait um, because she wasn't hot enough for his wife, basically. And that is kind of where the idea of Kevin can fuck himself came from. Um, my colleague Jen Cheney wrote a, a piece about it. It's, it's really worth reading if you're interested in the show. Um, I think I... I ended up struggling with the way that it uh, silos those two moods and builds the collapse of them like a mystery structure. Like you're waiting for the moment where one half kind of subsumes the other. And I think it, it makes it hard to live in either one fully, but it is certainly like a fascinating idea for, for like, messing with tv form does it have a second yeah. season is that what you said there's a planned second season and it's and it's gonna wrap it up and i don't think that the, you really couldn't extend this out any longer it just because the it would get very tropey very quickly if you tried to do it any longer so i think the fact that they're only they're only committed to doing one additional season i think is smart um rashida jones is one of the executive pro- producers of it so um which i find to be interesting so um but i yeah i if if you love Shit's creek is this is not Shit's creek at all <laughs> well good to know thank you johnny that's a super interesting kate i'm gonna pass it to you for pick number three Ah, pick number three. Mine weren't in any particular order because I would not say this was my favorite show of the year. It would probably be back, Get Back. Um, you, season three. Uh, I, yeah, this is a good one. Though. I really love the show. I've loved this show from the from the jump. So a lot of people know what you is, but I'll talk about it. You is, um, it is a, uh, 
you know what? Never mind. I'm going to back into my argument here. The same pleasures I get watching you are sort of like the pleasures I get from watching the Americans. Now, bear with me here. Uh, both of these shows use a very particular kind of genre storytelling. Uh, for the Americans, it's a spy show. For you, it's like an erotic thriller. Uh, to be both that genre story, but also to mine the sort of like rich metaphorical soil about relationships patterns social institutions for the americans it's all you know it's a spy show but it's also about the nuclear hetero-american family what marriage is what it is to be a parent what it is to be a child what it is to be an american and you it's about romantic love so basically, you is everything I loved best about Gone Girl, only 11 billion times funnier. It is so sharp. It is so, it has teeth and it's so funny. Um, so every, there have been three seasons. The first season, uh, Penn Badgley, or oh my God, what's Jenna call a Bag Pedgley? What did I say? <laughs> bag. Anyway, Bag Penn Badgley, who I think has a great sense of humor. So I don't think he would care that I called him Bag. Um, he, uh, he, is a he's a stalker he's an obsessive and he basically chooses someone to obsess about and thinks that they're in love and then eventually things go very he starts murdering people basically so to both keep this love but also eventually to protect himself so the first season uh is he works in a bookstore and he falls in love with a woman named beck and all of the sort of like satirical uh set dressing setting around it is like lit scene bookstore stuff right that's just ripe for satire second season he moves out to california uh falls in love with um a woman named love played by victoria Pedretti, who is a genius <laughs> she's mm, yeah so oh yeah fucking good uh and and that sort of the the milieu that it's satirizing there is the kind of like wellness culture of southern california uh season three is set in san francisco after spoiler he and love have married and have had a child and also, she's also a serial killer, so it's very Gone Girl, right? The sort of, like, two mm-hmm. terrible people who are perfect for each other in some ways. And season three is very much satirizing the, the like, hyper-wellness culture of the Bay Area, the tech bros, the, like, I can solve everything in my life with, like, surveillance and cameras. Um, it's so funny and so dark and so insightful and poignant i think about the ways that like people get trapped by ideas about the kinds of lives they should be living um it has an exceptional like pair of foils for uh for um the two main characters Penn badgley and victoria petretti their their characters petretti um and sherry and carrie who i just like just want to mention their names and i almost don't want to tell anyone else about them just like go watch it and just like watch them blossom as the wonderful human beings they are <laughs> it's I love so that. good it's so good it really oh is. my god and the end the very last episode like it really you know for being a show it's beautifully plotted like every season has a very discreet arc even though um it is we're following one character from year to year from season to season and he keeps kind of getting deeper and deeper in various things how has nobody found out who joe goldberg is yet who the hell knows it doesn't matter um but like the the final episode of this season i thought was so satisfying so sad and such an exceptional deployment of a taylor swift song that like literally every time i hear that taylor swift song i see what we're seeing and i hear like there's a line about 
toes at the very it's like your duct tape thing Catherine like I don't want to say what the line is about toes but it's so good it's so good so So anyway it's satisfying satisfying. you is a great show it's a great show and it's a really great fucking show show. which is so crazy because when I first saw like the ads for it I was like is this kind of like a post-teen drama thing Mm -hmm. am I wrong did I get the wrong impression it's it's darker than that it's more adult than that I mean I think part of what they're they're using Penn Badgley right to be like you think he's dreamy you think he's the boy next door all the things he's doing are completely fucking psychotic right and the show knows that and I think the show in the past is sort of like the kind of like viewer what's the word for like like people are reading they're like oh my god he's so hot I'm like yeah Penn Badgley is hot but like Joe Goldberg is fucking terrifying (laughs) like but also super compelling but also when you put him in these situations where like the rest of the world is so wild you know and the way that it sort of satirizes these various milieus you're like actually the psychopath seems like he I'm on his side. Has his points. points. That's his yeah. points. You you definitely walk away, and especially by the end of season three, you go, I see what you're talking about. I'm like, yeah. I'm with yep. you. I mean, the other yeah, the other thing about it is that there's they use a lot of voiceover yes. in the show. Mm. Voiceover is often used poorly, but this is one of the few cases where a show has figured out how to use voiceover to create an unreliable yes. narrator, yes. which mm-hmm. TV does not know how to mm-hmm. do, yeah. and it is so effective and interesting and messy and like you're just it it is i think another one of those where you're like yeah this seems like a like a really like fun like kind of silly strange dark serial killer kind of show and it disguises how hard it is to sort of nail the tone of what they're doing yeah yes the tone is is really exceptional and also like the unreliable narrativeness i feel like this season when he has someone like the love character to sort of like we we also we get her voiceover too don't we if i'm remembering correctly Mm -hmm, like she they just it's just this sort of like perfect design of what the show has been wanting to become in some ways and it really just like knocked out of the park this year yeah actually i would say the voiceovers are almost their own characters like they yeah it's it's joe goldberg and it's it's love but it's on a in a way it's not like they're almost a little bit separated from the person who is living in this terribly sterile northern california mm-hmm. town so um in when you're you mentioning it earlier it was that there the voiceover isn't there to like tell the story it's really having a kind of darkly pointing poignant conversation with this fake version of whoever joe is lusting after which is kind of creates a an, another le- level to that particular character yeah it's character building and and the lies they're telling to themselves that we the reader the reader the watcher are like uh... mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's really it's a great yeah. show it's a great show yeah no so you check it out mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you and like you've done a great job of explaining because the marketing did not kind of give me an insight into how psychologically compelling it yeah. is so thank you guys and funny and funny like yeah i don't think anybody had described it to me as funny before and like yeah hearing oh my god that this is the first i'm hearing about that and i've talked to people about you several times so like this 
gives me cause to want to get into it more because I didn't know that was part of it. Yeah, there's an heiress in the first season who's somehow involved with the literary scene whose name is Peach Salinger. So like, <laughs> oh it's like that level, like to the names, but also it's just, it's a very clever show that like uh, what we do in the shadows, it like, and what you were just saying, Catherine, it, it is doing a lot on a really high level and it looks like nothing. This was the reason why this was my first culture club post. That's right. It was. Uh, with that being said, Catherine, I'm going to turn it over to you to take us home with your final pick. Woo, bring us home. Okay. <laughs> my final choice. I do want to say like, uh, if anyone reads my stuff, you're going to go on Vulture and be like, uh, these weren't the top actually three shows that you picked on your list like yeah bitches that's how it goes um the, <laughs> um uh, my favorite show of the year is station 11 that doesn't come out actually until next week uh, so everyone hey. watch that but i'm not going to talk about it um the show that i i really do want to uh, talk about is reservation dogs it is a show that i you know you sort of we make our lists at the beginning of the year. Like what are the most anticipated things? Like what are we, should we pay attention to? What's going to be like the really big TV? And those lists are sort of never right. And you, you always make them and know that there are going to be surprises, but reservation dogs was like, nowhere like no one had heard of it no one knew that it was a thing no one knew it was coming once even once they started talking like it was like on a list you're like i don't know what that is like i i don't have time um and i ended up watching it uh i think they they sent the first three episodes at the beginning um and i i i watched the first episode and was really 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 taken with it and it took maybe two or three more episodes before I was like fully like all in on how incredibly beautiful this show is. It's a Hulu show. It's an FX Hulu show. Um, who even knows what that means anymore? <laughs> yeah. I probably should and don't. Um, and it is about four teenagers who are um, uh, in, of indigenous descent who live on or near a, a reservation in Oklahoma. And Reservation Dogs is a, a clear reference to the Tarantino film Reservoir Dogs. And like they, they sort of dress them like the show plays with that but it is also a word like a term used for people who live on a reservation in the first scene of the first episode it is these four teenagers um their names are Alora, bear cheese and willie jack um and uh, two girls and two boys and they um steal a Flamin' Hot Chips truck. They make up a fictional Flamin' Hot Chips called Flamin' Flamers. They steal the truck and then are stuck for the rest of the season with this truck. Like they manage to flip the truck, but then they have like many boxes of Flamin' Flamers. And um, (laughs) it's, it's very, it's so funny. And I immediately was like, and they're sort of playing with it as um, a heist kind of a show. You're expecting it to be the same kind of like they're getting into shenanigans on the res. Like that's kind of – and it is that show. But it the pace very quickly changes and becomes about the fact that they are stuck on this reservation mm-hmm. um, and have very complicated feelings about it as where their families are, where their heritage is 
also how absolutely stultifying it is as far as like wanting to leave and become another kind of person and like engage with the world more broadly. Um, and so the way that the show moves slowly is a, a purposeful part of like the kinds of story that is trying to tell about these characters. It does so many things that are like my very favorite television things. It is just a tiny bit magical realist. One of the characters sees um, a warrior sort of a, a, like a 19th century Native American warrior who shows up and like tells him that he should be a better man, but also he like pees on stuff sometimes and like occasionally gives messages to the wrong person and it's kind of a mess. So he has this like spirit guide who's a who's a comic disaster. Um, it does individual episodes about each of the characters, which I really like as a device, but which few shows do as well as this one does. The performances by the teenagers are some of the best, most naturalistic, most um, effective, but also controlled performances that I saw on television this year. And I think it tells a story about like America and Americanness that feels it both instantly recognizable in and universal in a lot of ways, but also like a kind of story you so rarely see anywhere and particularly on television. Um, I am just absolutely enamored with how beautiful it is. And I am hoping that lots and lots of people watch it and talk about it because I think it's just astonishing TV. And this is another Taika Waititi, correct? Yeah. So Taika Waititi um, is using his um, uh, executive producer power now to make shows like this happen. But mm -hmm. the showrunner is a guy named Sterling Harjo. Um, and man, what a great job he does. Great. That's awesome. Has anybody else watched this? I have. What, it, what did you and beautiful is absolutely the word to ascribe to it. Like it's beautifully shot. It is beautifully written. It is beautifully acted just at every turn. It is both really, really funny and funny in a very specific way because it doesn't yeah. try to go broadly to like, here is how you understand these elements of indigenous culture. Like it is, here is how we speak. We will not translate it for you. And you kind of just get what you get and you are brought into the world that way. But it is also like really deeply emotional. Like there are elements of that kind of like despondence and hopefulness of wanting to be somewhere that you can't be yet. There's grief. It's so beautifully done. And like the further you get into it, the more intricate and interesting it gets. And man, exceptional. It was, and it was one of those things where it's like, if it was on somebody's list, then I wasn't going to talk about it. But man, I can't yeah. full agreement with everything you said. Awesome. So thank you for sharing that with us, Catherine. And I think that's actually it for our picks, folks. Did you watch any of them? Do you have opinions? Is there something else that we missed? This episode is just the beginning of the discussion. So let us know your favorites on social media and at greatpopculturedebate.com. I want to say a big thank you to my panelists. You guys picked a great group of shows in a very crowded field of excellent television this year. And a huge, huge thank you to Catherine for joining us. Catherine, can you tell people one more time where they can find more of your work? Yes. Um, I am, as I mentioned, depressingly online um, on Twitter at Kay Van Aaron. I am a TV critic. I'm actually also a comedy critic and I'm a features writer for vulture.com slash New York magazine. Um, uh, you can find me there. I am sometimes on um, WNYC where I talk about like 
previews for monthly stuff. And I have a podcast called Appointment Television that is um, I make with my two friends. We are in the process of transitioning it into something else we're not totally sure yet, but it will still definitely exist in at least some forms, um, including in our good one, bad ones, Mm -hmm. uh, which we pick good ones and bad ones and then force each other to watch them, especially (laughs) the bad ones. Um, and, uh, And yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you again so much for coming and joining us this time. Uh, And as for you listeners, you better buckle up because the Great Pop Culture Debate has plenty more for you in 2022. Come right back to greatpopculturedebate.com right after the new year as the polls for season five will open up for your votes. This time we're taking on best HBO original series, best boy band, best 1990s sitcom, and best 1980s soundtrack, just to name a few. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out our other best of 2021 episodes devoted to music and film. They will be releasing the last week of 2021. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Audible, Smoke Signals, I don't know, whatever. And also make sure to follow us on all the social media accounts for the latest news. And if you haven't yet supported us on Patreon, what are you waiting for? There are so many great perks and we'd love to have you as part of our little pod family. Thank you for listening this year and let's all look forward to a bigger and brighter 2022. And seriously, universe, I mean it this time. Let's get our shit together. Have a good one, everybody. (laughs) 